Okay, good morning. We come to our last lesson on the tabernacle in the wilderness. Just want to make a few introductory comments before we get into the specifics of the lesson today. I think it's probably the most important lesson uh, about this uh, tabernacle. We remember that this particular uh, structure is a portable uh, worship center, a portable sanctuary that went with the children of Israel. They weren't a small family, right? When they let, went out of Egypt, they were 600,000 footmen, it says in the uh, Exodus chapter 12. So we uh, multiply from that if they were married, if they had children. It could have been anywhere uh, from a million upward. This was a big family, and God had, after he redeemed them, God said he would dwell among them. And this is an artist's rendition, if you will, of the tabernacle in the wilderness. And you can ma imagine if you lived on 10th Street, whatever street that it may have been, because it was all tents, right? This was the worship center. You can see uh, pictured there the pillar of fire above the tabernacle itself. And it must have been an awesome sight to be in the midst of the camp. God would dwell. That's the key to the lesson in the tabernacle. The Lord would dwell among his people. So we're going to get into our lesson and finish our uh, course on the tabernacle with some Bible readings, and we'll invite those up. They are in order, so if you can turn to Exodus chapter 25 and just follow along with the readings there, and we have some volunteers to do that for us. <clears throat> and they shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two and a half cubits uh, shall be its length, a cubit and a half its width, and a cubit and a half its height. And you shall overlay it with pure gold inside and out. You shall overlay it and shall make on it a molding of gold all around. You shall cast uh, four rings of gold for it and put them in its four corners. Two rings shall be on one side and two rings on the other side. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. You shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark that the ark may be carried by them. The poles shall be in the rings of the ark and they shall not be taken shall not be taken from it. And you shall put into the ark the testimony which I will give you. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two and a half cubits shall be its length and a cubit and a half its width. And you shall make two cherubim of gold of hammered work. You shall make them at the two ends of the mercy seat. You um, make one cherubim at one end and the other cherubim at the other end. You shall make the cherubim at the two ends of it uh, one piece with the mercy seat and the cherubim shall stretch out their wings above covering the mercy seat with their wings and they shall face one another the faces of the cherubim shall be toward the, the mercy seat you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I'll give you and there I, I will meet you I will meet with you I will speak with you from the, above the, the mercy seat from between the two cherubim which are on the ark of the testimony about everything which I will give you in commandment to the children of Israel. And thou shalt make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet and fine twine linen of cunning work with cherubim shall it be made. And thou shalt hang it upon four pillars of acacia wood overlaid with gold. Their hooks shall be of gold upon the four sockets of silver. And thou shalt hang up the veil under the tatches that thou may bring in there within the veil of the ark of the testimony. And the veil shall divide between 
unto you between the holy and the most holy. And thou shalt put the mercy seat upon the ark of the testimony in the most holy place. And thou shalt set the table without the veil and the candlestick over against on the side of the tabernacle in the south. And thou shalt put the table on the north side. All right, uh, in Leviticus 16.2. And the Lord said to Moses, tell your brother... Uh, tell Aaron your brother not to come at just any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat which is on the ark lest he die for I will appear in the cloud above the mercy seat Hebrews 6:18 through 20 says that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie we must have strong cons consolation who have who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us this hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become the high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. And then chapter 9, 1 through 8 says, Then indeed, even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service and the earthly sanctuary. For a tabernacle was prepared, the first part in which was the lampstand, the table, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, in which were the golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Now when these things had thus been prepared, the priests always went into the first part of the tabernacle tabernacle performing the services but into the second part the high priest went alone once a year not without blood which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance the holy spirit indicating this that the way into the holiest of holy holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing okay thank you now just make a few more comments before we get into the Lesson. The tabernacle we see, have seen so far reveals the way of salvation. There's one gate. All the people that lived around, if they wanted to get in and come to God, which dwelt where we're going today, they had to come in one way. There wasn't a way to climb over. There wasn't a gate in the back or a gate on the side. There was one way. The way of salvation was through the uh, gate. And then the work and the walk of the servant. We're looking at the priest. You see there's a lot of activity out here. They, we read in the, uh, in the reading there in Hebrews, they, they went into the first uh, 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 place there to accomplish the service of God. So there was the, the uh, work and the walk of the servant. And then lastly, the worship of the saint. Uh, the believer could come to this place and worship the Lord uh, in his own prescribed way. This was something that we can learn from in the Old Testament. Just another few introductory statements. The Old Testament stories that uh, are throughout, they uh, shadow New Testament truth. The Lord Jesus referred to something that we have not looked at as of yet in uh, at Numbers chapter 21, but we will look at it in the will of the Lord in the future about uh, a, a happening within the wilderness where the Lord sent fiery snakes and Moses had to make a serpent of brass and lift it up. But the Lord referred to that later on in John chapter 3. And then the, the, the priests, 
They serve as, uh, at a sanctuary that is a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. Look at that last phrase, what is in heaven. Do you ever wonder what is in heaven? Well, if you want to know what is in heaven, if I want to know what is in heaven, well, I look at the tabernacle because it's a copy of what is there. This, there, there is uh, a number of lessons that we can learn from this tabernacle of the wilderness. But the scripture goes on to say these are a shadow of the things that were to come. The rea reality, however, is found in Christ. Uh, and then the law is only a shadow of good things that are coming. The substance is of Christ. The reality is in the Lord Jesus. Now we might reasonably ask, uh, from, uh, since we're on that subject of just being a shadow of what is to come, why concern ourselves with the shadow? Why do we study the tabernacle anyway? Well, you know, there is a multitude of reasons, but I'd just like to offer a few before we get into the, the specific details of our lesson today. Why should we study the tabernacle in the wilderness? Well, we can look at it this way. When God wrote a book, he put something about the tabernacle, a lot of details, 50 chapters at least, in the word of God about the tabernacle in the wilderness. Now think about this. When it comes to creation, there's two chapters. Now, yes, it's, it's alluded to throughout the word of God, but creation has two chapters. The tabernacle has 50. You wouldn't be able to understand. We wouldn't be able to understand some of the New Testament books like Hebrews and Revelation if we didn't know about the tabernacle. God thinks the tabernacle is important. If he put it 50 chapters, then we better think it's important as well. You know, it's interesting today... There's a number of creation societies that forward the fact that God created the heavens and the earth. And we don't want to downplay them because they're important. But we don't see many tabernacle societies going around. But you know, when God wrote a book, he put in there his instructions for the tabernacle. And so we can learn something about him from this wonderful, wonderful structure. You know, it's, it's only mankind that has a, tr a, a problem with creation. But when, you know, God has no problem at all with creation. Uh, uh, he's the only witness that was there, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But mankind, they fight over it. But when it comes to the tabernacle, right, he put 50-some chapters, and there is a lot of detail. In fact, in the book of Exodus, two sections, uh, 25 through 31, and then 35 through 40. Two sections in Exodus. And it's almost repeated a word for word when the tabernacle is set up. So there's something important about this tabernacle in the wilderness. It's symbolic of the Savior. It speaks of the Lord Jesus. We read in the book of Hebrews that we enter into the holiest of all by the blood of Jesus through the veil. What's the veil? His flesh. So how would we understand how we as believers come to God if it didn't wasn't for the fact of the tabernacle? We have this... It's a, 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 it's a, uh, a, a, a something whereby we can uh, uh, see in our minds a model, a thought model where we can conceptualize what it is, how we as children of God can come and worship the living God. But we pass through the veil that is to say his flesh. It says, we didn't read in Hebrews 10, that we come into the holiest of all. How would we understand what that is if it wasn't for the tabernacle? It is symbolic of the Savior. And then again, it's a representation of heaven. If I want to know what's in heaven, in fact, I was reading just a couple of things. I was reading this morning when Isaiah had his vision in chapter 6. He says, I saw the Lord high and lifted up and the 
uh, seraphim were above him. <laughs> you know, here it's cherubim, there it's seraphim, but still the picture is such that there's the throne of God. I saw the Lord high and lifted up on his throne, and the seraphim were there. If we go to the book of the Revelation, you know how many references there are to the tabernacle in the book of the Revelation? A number. Look at, uh, uh, you know, in, in chapter, is it 18, when there was silence in heaven, and, and, and there was this... Uh, the, the priest was seen with a golden censer and coming to the altar of incense and taking the prayers of the saints and so forth. That's all sim the symbolism is in the tabernacle. So there we could spend a whole week on this, the, the uh, necessity of studying the tabernacle because it helps the believer to draw near to the Lord. We might be looking a little bit more at that tonight. Let's get on then with our lesson of, about the uh, tabernacle. So there's three sections in the tabernacle. There's a section for sacrifice. That's where the animals were brought. This, this is the altar of burnt offering. That fire never went out. Never went out. Right? Once it, the Lord started it, it never went out. And there was constant sacrifices being uh, offered on that altar. We've already looked at that. Then there was the labor. But this is all a place of sacrifice here. Then there was a place of service. The priest went in accomplishing the service of God. And then there was the place of speaking. We read there in, in uh, we'll touch on this a little bit later. We read there uh, when it comes to the, uh, uh, the ark, there, 25, 22, there I will meet with you. I will commune with you above the mercy seat from between the two cherubims which are upon the ark of all things which I will give you in commandment unto the children of Israel. Let's think about that. A place of speaking. God would speak to Moses and Moses would speak to the people, a million plus. Now you talk about a social network. Look at what God set up there, did he not? God set up that way where he could speak to his people through a mediator. What a network that was. You know, we get so occupied with our social networks today, but it's all horizontal, right? It's not vertical. And God had set up the place in the ark, which we're going to look at, where he could speak to Moses, the mediator, and Moses could speak to the people. What a wonderful network that is. What better way for you and I to operate in life than to, but to commune with our Creator and to understand more about our Creator. And if you know Him this morning, more about our Redeemer, more about our Savior. Okay, so it was a, that's, now we're going to go inside the veil. <clears throat> this is forbidden territory. We read in Leviticus that you shall not come at every time into the holiest of all. Once a year, the high priest was allowed. Now, you and I that live in this economy now, we sort of uh, have grown used to it. And, and the New Testament has come in and the veil is torn. But, but listen, it, it, it helps us to get a better grip on the holiness of God when we see that it was only once that God would allow someone behind the veil. Now just think about this. Let's look at that picture a little bit. Again, an artist's rendition of what it might have been. But the priests come in to accomplish the service of God. They, they have their work on the lampstand. They have their work on the table of showbread where God would eat with them. And there they can learn about God. By the way, if you look at this, you're going to see those lovely colors in those cherubim that are in the veil and over the, the top there. You know, from the outside, you know what the tabernacle looked like? It looked rather drab and ugly because it had badger skin or porpoise skin over it. 
It wasn't very impressive. Now, all the people could see from the outside was that lovely white linen. But if they could get in there and see the outside of that tabernacle, it wouldn't be very attractive. You know, so many things speak of the Lord Jesus. You know, there's no beauty that we should desire him. But when that priest went in there, you see, he could learn about God and he could see the cherubim and the lovely colors. And we'll talk about that in a minute or two. So the behind the veil, the very holy presence of God. Let's see. Let's talk about that veil a little bit. We read something about it. Now, let's think about the veil. What it did According to the word of God in Exodus chapter 26 and verse 33, it says it would divide. The veil will divide unto you between the holy and the most holy. Now, I'm not uh, 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 under I don't understand Hebrew, but in there's three there's that when it says the holy and the most holy, what the, that Hebrew word is repeated twice there at the end. Holy, holy. So your translation might say holy of holies or holiest of all or something like that. But it's doubled. Holy of holies. This was a place where, where God would presence himself and he allowed no man in there only once a year and not without blood. Well, let's look at the veil. Uh, it hid the presence from mortal eyes. In other words, when, the, when the everyday priests came into the first part of the sanctuary to do their service, the veil hid the presence of God from their mortal eyes. If not, they would have died. There is no man that shall look on me and live. It hid the presence of God from mortal eyes. It kept men out. You see, the, we saw in the other picture the cherubim. You remember about cherubim? When our first parents were on the earth and they sinned, God cast them out of the garden. And what did he put there to guard the way so they could not go back into the tree of life? Cherubim. They were creatures that God had made. They were guardians, ex executors of the judgment of God. All right? So now he has it in, in, uh, embroidered into the, the veil that, that, that mankind has to keep out. Forbidden territory. No trespassing. You could not go in. Okay, so we learn something about the holiness of God and his righteousness by, what, by these things. And then, it, yet, yet, though, the veil was a merciful provision. It allowed man to come as near to God as possible. God, we're going to see, would presence himself right there in the Ark of the Testament. All right, but, but the priest could come in 364 days a year, if you will, and they could do the service of God. It was a merciful provision that allowed man to come as close as possible to the Lord. And it hid both the glories of God and it revealed the glories of God in the lovely colors. Imagine going in and seeing what God had designed from the outside. Wonderful, wonderful thing. Okay, let's go on to the ark and the mercy seat. You know, the ark is not just something that Hollywood makes movies out of. The ark is something, is the most important piece of furniture in all the, ta in all the tabernacle. And think about this. When, when the tabernacle itself is introduced to us as readers, and God put it down in his word, in chapter number 25 of Exodus, after he, after he gave all the things that they, the materials that they were to gather, the very first thing he talks about is the ark. Now, that's not typical in our minds. If you were building a, a sanctuary, if you were building a house, you would, you would, uh, you would finish it, 
before you furnish it, right? You wouldn't put your master bedroom suite out there in the open, you know, and then build a house around it, would you? No, but that's not the way God operates. God saw fit that his presence is first and foremost. So he gives that instruction first. So the ark is very, very important. God must be first. And then it's the only piece of furniture that is attached to the name of the Lord. It's called the ark of God, the ark of the Lord of all the earth, the ark of the Lord and so forth. This is the only piece of furniture, as far as I can see in the word of God and in the tabernacle, that is attached to the name that is above all names, the ark of the Lord. And we're going to see that this ark symbolizes the throne of God. We, we understand that from various parts of the scripture. But God, just think about this. When the priest came in and he stood before that ark to do his work, which I'll we'll talk about, that symbolized the throne of God. You know, it's often said that in the tabernacle, there's no seat. You ever heard that? There is no seat in the tabernacle because the priest always had something to do. There was never-ending work for the priest. But there was one seat, but it was for the Lord. It was the throne of God where God sat alone on his throne. And that's remarkable. That's remarkable because God would dwell there, as it were, and the people could come in or the priest could come in on behalf of the people and commune with the living God as God was seated on his throne. Imagine what it would be like. Just think about this. If we had an invitation, you know, to the White House and we could come in when they're not shut down and visit the President of the United States and to see how all of the uh, great country in which we live is and is governed. We could be, I think there's a name for that, isn't it? I can't remember, but it's, a, it's re remarkable that the place where this country is run, you know, to, be, to go in and to see all that's happening. But here was the very throne of God that man, that the, the high priest was allowed to come in and, and stand before the throne and do his work. Now we're going to see what his work was here in a minute. But the ark was a place of government. It was a place of grace. It was a place of glory. A wonderful, wonderful thing was the ark. But the ark not only was it, the ark by the, go back, the ark or the, you might have chest or box, was, was separate from what was on top. And what was on top, got to learn how to operate this. What was on top was what was called the mercy seat. Now, this was separate. It says in, in chapter 25, you shall make a, a mercy seat of pure gold, and it shall sit on the top of the ark or the chest or the box. Now, let's, let's think about this uh, mercy seat. The cherubim of glory, we read in Hebrews, overshadowing the mercy seat. What about these cherubim? Well, the Bible calls them the, or refers to them as the symbols of righteousness and justice of God. You remember, when Adam and Eve were driven out, the cherubim were there and they had a sword. Well, there's no, no sword here, but what they were doing is they were looking down, right? What does it say in verse number 20? It says, their faces shall be toward one another, toward the mercy seat. Why were they looking at the mercy seat? Can I tell you a one reason why they would have been looking at the mercy seat? In that chest, in that ark, 
was the law of God, the perfect righteousness of God. You remember what happened when Moses had the tables or the tablets of the law, right? God wrote with his own finger his own laws. And Moses received those laws from God. And he came down from the mount. And what were the people doing? The ones that said they wanted to be under this perfect law, they were partying and having a good time. We heard a few weeks back, Exodus 32. And Moses heard all of this ruckus, and he took those tablets and he broke them. Where did God's perfect law go? Mankind cannot keep the law of God. God said, make another pair and put it inside the ark. So these cherubim, these symbols of divine righteousness, they're staring down at the mercy seat. And you know what's on the mercy seat? The sprinkled blood. You see, there was this, this aspect of judgment that the law brought, but the aspect of mercy that God would extend to sinners that can't keep the law. There's a lovely verse in Psalm 85 that says, Mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. It, I think it's an apt description of this mercy seat and the, and the uh, ark of God. The peace and mercy that are on the mercy seat, the truth and the righteousness that are contained in the ark, because that's the only place that the law of God could be kept. It can't be kept in your heart. It can't be kept in yours. It can't be kept in yours. It can't be kept in mine. It can only be kept in the ark of God or the son of God, the Lord Jesus. But because God's law is utterly unbending, it demands justice. And so, when the high priest went in, and instead of being slain right away, he sprinkled the blood on the mercy seat, and mercy and truth met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. What a wonderful picture we see when they went into the holiness of all. You see, that man doesn't have to be slain. We were reading this morning, it is because of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed. So that's what happened on the mercy seat. And then we want to go, what's inside the ark? Well, there's a couple of places in the Bible that tell us, but I think the one in Hebrews that we read, we're going to stick with that one. Inside the ark, there were three things. Now, we've already referred to the tablets. These are not electronic tablets. These are stone tablets of the law that were hid or placed in the ark of God. And then there was Aaron's rod that budded. We'll look at that lesson in a few weeks. And then there was a golden jar of manna. Now let's think about that for just a minute or two. We've already talked in our studies in Exodus about the golden jar of manna. It's amazing when you think about it. What happened to manna if it was left one day? It went bad, didn't it? It went corrupt. But it could be preserved in the ark. But it taught Israel a fundamental lesson. Here's what the word of God says. You shall remember which, the way which the Lord your God led you 40 years in the wilderness to humble you, to prove you, to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. He humbled you. He suffered you to hunger. He fed you with 
manna, which your fathers knew not, neither did your fathers know, which you knew not, neither did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth from the mouth of the Lord. This golden pot of manna that was laid up in the ark of God taught Israel a fundamental lesson, and it teaches you and me as well. The physical dimension of life is not the only dimension. There's a higher one. The physical dimension of life is not the sum total of life. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Now, I want to tell you that in the world that you and I live, food or bread or physical sustenance is the most important thing. No matter what color it is, what flavor it is, we don't really pay attention to the word of God as a general rule. But God says to the nation of Israel, and God says to you and me, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And he goes on later in this passage. Our time is running out. We want to just refer to this, that the uh, physical gifts like manna were given to lead us to personal fellowship with the Lord. In other words, when God gave that manna, he rained down bread from heaven, angels' food, it says, but it was given, these gifts of God were given to lead the Israelites to personal fellowship with their creator. Right? And not to forget the Lord. They were to in, not to enjoy the gifts that God gave, like manna, independently of the giver. But altogether too often, that is the way we operate in humanity. We enjoy the gifts without the giver. But that is to lose life at its highest dimension. If that's all we go after is the gifts, like manna, like physical sustenance. Let me give you an example. Here's a musician. And she or he says, you know, music, it's my life. I eat and I drink and I sleep. Music, that's what life's all about for me. That's all it is, is music. And they give themselves to music. Now, there's nothing wrong with music. <laughs> We're going to join in a song in heaven that never shall end. Worthy is the lamb, they sung a new song. But to live life, Merely on the physical level and to enjoy the blessings or the gifts without the giver. Here's that musician. They find their whole life giving their self to music. But then when life is over and they stand before the Lord, they're going to find eternal discord. And all their life they've been making lovely music. Because the physical gifts that God gives are good. But they're not meant to be enjoyed apart from the giver. And so this lesson here teaches us that, that, oh, they were taught fundamental lessons. It says in Deuteronomy 8 here. Those things that God put in there teach, taught them and they teach us. Lovely, lovely lessons that are life lessons. They should last us and bring us on into eternity. And lastly, heaven. Just like to read a few verses and we're going to close. We read in Hebrews those verses in chapter 6. Because when the high priest went in to the holiest of all, 
that symbolized for us heaven. Because that is the copies of the things that are in heaven. So let's close here with this reference. In Hebrews, we already read 6, 19 through 20. Let me just read, referred to this earlier, but we didn't read it. This is speaking to those who know the Lord Jesus. By the way, if you're here this morning and you know the Lord Jesus, as your personal Savior, these verses apply to you and they apply to me. If you don't know the Lord Jesus, it doesn't apply. Having, therefore, brethren, boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our body washed with pure water. How would we understand the great privilege we have if it wasn't for the tabernacle? But look, heaven, according to the end of chapter 6, is not only the future habitation of every child of God. Because, why? The forerunner. Who's the forerunner? The Lord Jesus. We read it there in Hebrews 6. The forerunner entered into that within the veil, right? Just like the tabernacle. The forerunner, the Lord Jesus, entered in within the veil, inside the veil. How do, we know that I'm, how do I know that I'm going to be there? Because the forerunner went there first. I know. And if you're a believer this morning, you know that you're going to be in God's heaven because the forerunner entered first. He entered into that which in the veil. In the veil. We lay hold of the hope that is set before us, that refuge that we have in Christ. He, the forerunner, is there in glory. That's my guarantee, and that's your guarantee, if you know Christ to save you, that you're going to be in God's heaven. But it's not only a future habitation, but it's a present realization. Listen, as a child of God, I don't just look forward to heaven. I can visit heaven every day, and so can you. Did you know that? Let us, I have a high priest. You have if you know Christ. You have a high priest over the house of God. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our body washed with pure water. It's a wonderful thing to be able to visit heaven every day in the spirit, to be able to draw near to the Lord Jesus and to see our high priest that is over the house of God and to experience his fellowship, to enjoy his person and to visit heaven in that way. You know, I don't have to be under the circumstances all the time in life. How's things going? Well, pretty bad under the circumstances. Well, I could, be, I could begin the day and go throughout the day enjoying the very presence of God in the holiest of all. What do you think the scripture means when it says, if you then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. It's a wonderful privilege to go through life. Yes, there are trials. Yes, there are circumstances. Yes, there are all these adverse things that happen. But to be able as a child of God to understand that God is on the throne and I can come right into his throne and visit and understand that he is still on the throne. All things are under his care. He works all things after the counsel of his will. It's a wonderful thing to be able to visit the very throne room of heaven, the very government of the universe, and to know that I have a connection through the Lord Jesus because he is the king of kings and Lord of lords. And so our study this morning comes to an end. But I trust that these, you know, <clears throat> 
the tabernacle in the wilderness was not just Israelite antiquity. There's something that we can learn. Every child of God, if we want to go on in our faith and know the Lord. By the way, did you notice that in the tabernacle, the, the gold was on the inside and the brass was on the outside. If we want to go for the gold, right, we have to draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience, body washed with pure water. If that's your intent in mind, God will grant it. That we can go through life in connection with the King of kings and Lord of lords. We can visit heaven on a daily basis. And we thank the Lord for his symbolic lesson we have in the tabernacle. Paul said, or the writer of Hebrews said, he couldn't speak in detail. I don't know that we'll ever be able to understand in detail everything about this tabernacle. But we can understand a little bit more about heaven. A little bit more about our Savior. A little bit more about God as we look into it and see how it points to the Lord Jesus. Let's close in prayer. Our Father, we're thankful this morning for the wonderful pictures and truths that you have given to us in this tabernacle in the wilderness. We're thankful that we've looked at today just in short form the very throne room of God. The Lord sitteth between the cherubims, enthroned in glory. We are so thankful that we have that there. And we thank you for the mercy seat. Well, those, those uh, executors of your judgment, O oh God, looking down upon the mercy seat and seeing that blood sprinkled there, and thereby we are spared from our sin. And we thank you for the work of the Lord Jesus when he shed his blood on Calvary's cross, when he took our sin and our sorrow, he made it his very own. He bore our burden to Calvary. He suffered and died alone. We thank you for our mercy seat. We thank you that the, Paul could say in Romans chapter 3 that God hath set forth Jesus to be our mercy seat, our place of propitiation. And so we thank you, O oh God, for him. And we just pray that if there's one here this morning that doesn't know the Lord Jesus as Savior, they might come to know him, whom to know is life eternal, we pray in his own name. Amen.